from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Nestled in the Flint Hills of Kansas is the land of purple pride. That's right, we're entering wildcat country for the 2023 U.S. Farm Report Beck's College Roadshow. And we have a lot in store over the next 60 minutes. 2023 just may be the year of beef, but could record cattle prices continue into 2024? It's really important to monitor beef demand, not just the number of hooves that are in the cattle industry. Why K-State is now the home of a new center to uncover answers about just how costly foreign animal diseases can be. So I guess my question is, why not K-State? We are right in the middle of all animal health uh, industry. One state's ban on foreign farmland ownership could force a major ag company to sell 160 acres of land. We'll tell you where. And have you ever seen a purple combine? One of our other friends was kind of scrolling on Facebook Marketplace and happened to see it. And then we just thought it was pretty cool and um, figured out a way to buy it. It's a staple on game day and we're giving you a front row seat. Maybe we were wrong about Xi Jinping. The 2023 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Kansas State University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmer's first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Now for the news, Arkansas appears to be the first state in the nation to enforce a state law that bans certain foreign countries from owning ag land. The state's attorney general this week ordering a Chinese owned company to divest itself of 160 acres of farmland owned in Craighead County. Attorney General Tim Griffin ordering Northrop King Seed Company to divest the land in two years. Griffin also imposed a $280,000 fine on the company, he says, for not filing paperwork on time with the state secretary of agriculture. The request comes after the state legislature passed a law this year that restricts certain foreign party controlled businesses from acquiring or holding public or private land in Arkansas. Northrop is a division of Syngenta Seeds, which is owned by Kim China, also known as China National Chemical Company, which is a Chinese state-owned company. In response, Syngenta expressed disappointment with the decision, stating that no directives from China prompted its land acquisition in 1988. And a blow for producers in North Carolina. The Supreme Court declining to hear the state's defense of a law aimed at preventing hidden camera investigations. The justices leaving in place a legal victory for people for the ethical treatment of animals or PETA in its challenge of the law. An appeals court ruled the 2015 law could not be enforced against PETA when its undercover work is being performed to conduct news gathering activities. The law is similar to other so-called state ag gag laws, some of which have been struck down by courts around the country. Seaboard Foods has plans to build two new hog farms here in Kansas. The company receiving approval from commissioners in Ford County for the project. The farms would be located east of Buckland. Seaboard says there will be two barns housing about 2,500 gilts that will weigh between 45 to 300 pounds. It says no outdoor manure treatments will be built. Instead, eight foot deep concrete pits will be dug under the barn's floors. The manure will then be used as fertilizer on ag land. And Tyson Foods is banking on a new source of protein, 
bugs. It's buying stake in Netherlands-based Protix BV, a leading global insect ingredients company. The companies are entering into a joint venture for the operation and construction of an insect ingredient facility in the U.S. Once it's built, Tyson says it will be the first at-scale facility of its kind to upcycle food manufacturing byproducts into high-quality insect proteins and lipids. They will be used primarily in pet food, aquaculture, and livestock. Despite recent rains, harvest right now is still running ahead of schedule. USDA keeping us updated in the latest crop progress report. It shows that 45% of the corn is now harvested, three points ahead of the five-year average. As for soybeans, a big jump, now 62% harvested, way ahead of the five-year average by 10%. That progress came even amid mid to late week rainfall across some of the soybean production areas, especially the northern and eastern part of the Midwest. Now, with that, uh, the harvest progress is at least 20 percentage points ahead of the five-year average pace in three states, Arkansas, Iowa, and Kansas. The I-80 Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Case IH. The Farmall has been an iconic partner on the farm for generations. Come celebrate a century of Farmall. The one for all with us at farmall100.com and by AGI. At AGI, we spend a lot of time focused on product details, making sure you can store your grain how you need to and move it when you need to. Learn more at aggrowth.com. And harvest has been running well ahead of normal in Minnesota due to extreme dryness. Farmers have already harvested 45% of the corn crop, which is 13 points ahead of average, with 76% of the soybeans harvested, also 10 points ahead of normal. Nearly the entire state of Minnesota faced some level of drought this season, but for Bob Worth, it was the third year in a row. Rainfall was seven to nine inches below normal across the ground that he farms, which severely cut soybean production. However, his corn yields, well, those have been surprisingly strong. Our corn yields are uh, so far <laughs> running from 160 to 190. I mean, it just depends on the type of soil you have and et cetera. And our APHs are 199. So, I mean, we're not that far off of, of normal. If you, when we get all done and average them all, I think we're going to be very, very happy with our corn eels. It's just, it just blows my mind. That's it for the news. Well, Kansas held the title of worst soybean crop conditions in the country this fall, and the main story was drought. So have things improved? We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new PS6138 Power Spread Live Bottom Vertical Beater Manure Spreader has a 373 cubic foot heaped capacity, 5 8 inch grade 80 marine log chain and removable vertical beater assembly with half inch flighting and replaceable blades. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, drought has been the story here in Kansas all year. Things improved out west, but nearly half of the state is still seeing severe drought. More than 20% is an extreme drought in the central and southeastern part of the state, really bearing the brunt of it right now. Yeah, and it's not just in Nebraska. We got a couple of bullseyes on the map, unwanted bullseyes indicating again that extreme, if not exceptional drought to check out Louisiana, that Texas, of course, into Nebraska, but also uh, Iowa getting close as well in that severe to extreme as we start uh, to harvest and continue to harvest in and across the United States. 
It was that kind of pattern this summer. The extreme heat with passing systems that really didn't provide a lot of rainfall for a large portion of the nation. That's why you know, rather than having everybody relieved of any kind of drought, we have those bullseyes of exceptional, if not extreme, a drought in and across not only the Midwest, but you know, portions of the United States. And you see here the extreme to exceptional drought in Iowa, but also into Wisconsin as well, and, and into Missouri, Nebraska, with again, a couple of bullseyes right there and right there. It kind of tells you how this, uh, this entire season has gone uh, with the heat and those storm systems kicking up isolated you know, showers and thunderstorms rather than these big systems uh, bringing a decent amount of rainfall to a larger area. Now going through the next couple of days into the middle part of the week, uh, it's going to be all about the extremes, extreme cool, cold, if not the extreme heat. And you'll see that start to set up across the United States by Tuesday and Wednesday. We had a ridge that is going to be building quiet weather once again through the southeast and into the Midwest, where we're going to get back into the 60s, possibly approaching highs around 70 degrees uh, into Illinois, Indiana and Michigan. You know, which would put us nearly 10, possibly 15 degrees above average. Flip that over to the cooler than average and back out here towards the Pacific Northwest. That's what we're eyeing for our next significant uh, cold air outbreak. As we get uh, deeper into this month and start looking at November for some of those colder fronts to have a little bit more uh, cold air behind them. Friday into Saturday, start to see it take shape right there on the top left corner of your screen. So this isn't uh, next week. Yeah, this is next Saturday and Sunday. So Monday and Tuesday as we get into Halloween might be looking for some of those jackets across the United States with that trough uh, building and moving from the northwest down to the southeast. The precipitation outlook between October 24th and the 28th keeps things pretty wet where that trough is going to be digging. Now the one next week, so think uh, Halloween. We start to see that pattern that shift with the heat back out to the Midwest and that colder air out here towards the Northwest that is eventually uh, going to be moving down across the United States. Thanks, Matt. Well, low river levels aren't just a concern here in the US from drought in Brazil. The Amazon's second largest tributary reached a record low this week. So what does it mean for Brazil's crops? Our marketing roundtables from Kansas State University happen next. back to Kansas State for our College Road Show this weekend. We have Dustin Pendle, Glenn Tonzer, as well as Nelson Valoria joining us this weekend. A lot to cover, but first we want to talk about the grain markets. We saw an uptick in prices this week. A couple different things happening, but we are finally seeing demand start to pick up. We saw China come in and buy some sorghum, China come in and buy some corn. You know, when you look at the demand picture today, though, a lot of question marks about China. They're coming to Brazil or they're going to be coming to, to U.S. for some of their needs. You recently, Nelson, went to Brazil. When you look at how they've become such a powerhouse, how have they been so successful in growing their production there? So it's a combination of factors. Uh, it's a very large country with a lot of comparative advantage on agriculture. The cost of land and capital are lower than in other parts of the world. And there are also being uh, policy decisions made so Brazil becomes a, a, an agribusiness powerhouse. 25% of uh, Brazil's GDP, it's agribusiness stuff. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty important sector for their economy. Compare that with 5% in the U.S. Uh, getting all the supply chain of agribusiness. Um, a lot of investment an investment that goes into Brazil and from Brazil to the world. One of the biggest uh, meatpacking in the, uh, companies in the U.S. 
it's a Brazilian capital. And likewise, the same companies that you have buying soybeans and corn in the U.S., they are buying that corn in Brazil. So the foreign investment is huge. And perhaps the most important, Brazil made decisions about uh, investing in research and development in agriculture. And they converted a very extensive uh, uh, parts of that country that is huge, that were marginal lands, into mo uh, one of the most fertile farmland of the planet. And that, that started 50 years ago, and it's paying off. Well, and we'll get into more uh, discussion about Brazil in terms of beef here in a moment. But we did see some more news this week for export, pork exports picked up. But when you look at the picture today, how much more do we need exports to pick up to make up for some of these these low profit margins that we're forecasting right now in the U.S.? Yeah, and Ty, and you're asking specific on pork. So, you know, profitability for the typical U.S. hog producer is adverse. It's not a good story here in 2023. Um, some estimates are the typical person selling a market hog is losing $20 for each market hog to date here in 2023. If that continues and the projections for quarter four continue, it might be worse than we had even in 1998. So yes, we need additional pork exports that would help, but that alone is probably not gonna change the tide of 2023 being a very challenging year for hog producers here in the US. Challenging year for hog producers, different story for beef producers. So when you look at feedlot returns, you look at forecasts for your cow-calf operators, where do those set right now, Glenn? Yeah, so it's kind of the opposite story for cattle producers. So the typical cow-calf producer is estimated to maybe make over $200 here in 2023. That might approach 500 in 2024. And then feedlots are over $100 per head sold is the latest numbers. And those actually might approach 200 here in the fourth quarter. But some of that is directly related to tighter supplies. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the industry about herd rebuilding, the ongoing effects of the drought and so forth. But the pork industry definitely has more profit challenges than the cattle industry sitting here in 2023. Well, talking about rebuilding and expansion, when you look at Brazil, Dustin, how much have we seen Brazilian beef production grow and expand and how have they been so successful in doing that that's a good question Tyne. uh so recent last month i was down in brazil studying the the cattle industry and some of the questions i was asking related to the feedlots uh you know there's not a lot of cattle on feed like there is here in the united states but as we think about as they you know become a powerhouse in the corn and soybeans they will probably start to uh you know start feeding out cattle down in brazil and thus will uh, continue to grow their their cattle markets and ultimately their production, beef production, and probably their exports as well. Is the quality of Brazilian beef as good as the quality of U.S. beef? No, we're definitely not comparing. You don't want to compare U.S. beef to Brazilian beef at this point in time. Uh, you know, a lot of their, it's a lower quality beef down in Brazil. Uh, you know, cattle are a little older, you know, more grass-fed, uh, whereas here in the United States, cattle are younger when we process them uh, in addition to being grain fed. Well, how long could it take to rebuild this U.S. cattle herd and how much longer could we see these impressive cattle prices continue to just shoot higher? We're gonna talk about that, but first we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. China's President Xi Jinping and Russian leader Vladimir Putin met in Beijing this week. The two leaders called for close foreign policy coordination, reaffirming their ties. Putin even praised Xi as a dear friend. But as China's economy seems to erode, what's really going on? Here's John Phipps. For the last several months, ever larger numbers of economic and political experts 
have been trying to understand what the heck is going on in China. While their politics have always been difficult for outsiders to follow, until recently their economics were comparatively straightforward, or at least somewhat less mysterious. Recently, a new theory of comprehending Chinese government action has emerged and seems plausible, if not likely. Namely, Xi Jinping may not be the sharpest pencil in the box and even borderline incompetent. Many have a hard time wrapping their heads around this idea since the Machiavellian workings of the Chinese Communist Party and government bureaucracy seem to require political cunning and strategic foresight to rise to power. Instead, Xi seems increasingly focused on building a personality cult and only secondarily interested in the serious problems of his economy and foreign policy. He continues to pack top offices with hand-picked loyalists who may or may not have any uh, uh, expertise to bring to the challenges. Purging experts with different political views has weakened their top-down control economic system by producing poor decisions or more often no decisions at all. The enormous problem of Chinese real estate debt, the base of their economy, remains adrift and not in the right direction. The ambitious Belt and Road Initiative has run into predictable problems that are not insoluble but won't get better because they're being ignored. This is the lesson from the history we sadly don't teach much anymore. Strongman governments or dictatorships only work when the leader knows what he or she is doing. And they definitely don't work after, well, after that leader dies. It has been hard not to watch the astonishing rise of China to the world's second largest economy and number one manufacturer without giving grudging respect to their leadership, at least to date. But Xi is coasting on and possibly undoing accomplishments of his predecessors. China will be hard to understand and predict as long as he is in office. Thanks, John. Well, we don't have to travel far for Tractor Tales this weekend. Just 80 miles east of here is an avid collector who has a strong love for a plethora of tractor brands. That's Tractor Tales next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Special treat for you this week. We're headed to Linwood, Kansas to check out a very special collection. Case is probably one of my favorites since we had Case, but with my uncles having internationals and uh, other uncle having John Deere's, I was on 720s and 806s and 856s and all those other tractors. And, and then there was a lot of tractors that I wanted dad to buy. I was always coming up with a tractor deal when I was going to high school and, and uh, it never happened. Dad said, I'll make a deal with you. Anything that you, you can buy anything you want as long as you figure out how to pay for it. So that, that held me back. So in later years, I, I got some of the tractors that I wanted to get at an early age. I was influenced by my uncles had different brands and I drove them when I was young. And uh, I've always liked the tractors that, that went on a medium-sized farm, you know, just to, you could do anything with them. Maybe mow hay, plow, cultivate, fill silo. You know, everybody didn't have four or five tractors. 
you had to make one do it. You know, that, oh, 80 to 100 horsepower tractor, you could still mow hay with it, bale, and you could go chisel with it if you had to. So that's kind of what, kind of my favorite, the general purpose family size. I do use the 930 case to, to mow grass with and stuff, but to these others, I just kind of play with, really. When we come back, with the threat of foreign animal diseases on the rise, K-State is now working on uncovering the potential economic impacts, not just in the U.S., but across North and South America. It's a huge effort. So how is it being done? And that's what we're about to show you next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. There's a lot happening here at Kansas State University, and as the Dean of K-State's College of Agriculture tells us, it's a focus on innovation and next-gen that truly sets it apart. With the arrival of uh, President Linton, uh, he saw the need to uh, get us started with a new uh, campus-wide strategic plan that's called the NextGen uh, Land Grant, and it really is focusing on the kinds of things that K-State has deep strengths in, but moving us forward uh, into the next uh, decade or so. And so uh, we're really, really excited about that. Agriculture and K-State Research and Extension plug into that very, very nicely. And uh, one of the things that's part of that is, is something called K-State 105, so that K-State becomes a more broadly engaged university. Uh, we're going to be present, we already are, in all 105 counties, but in a new and elevated way connecting the university with all the communities in Kansas. We're really very excited about that. Another elevated effort underway here at K-State, the focus on foreign animal diseases. USDA has said the detection of ASF in U.S. pigs could devastate the entire pork industry. That's why pork producers and the pork industry have worked hard to keep the disease out of the U.S. So just how much damage could a disease like ASF do? It's still largely unknown, but that's what a new effort underway here at Kansas State University is looking to find out. Take a drive across Kansas State University today and signs of a major focus on biodefense and animal agriculture are everywhere. We also have NBAF, which is the National Bioagri-Defense Facility that's being built you know, on, at the edge of campus. Um, you've got BRI here on campus. And so I guess my question is, why not K-State? We are right in the middle of all animal health um, industry. Dustin Pendle received some exciting news this summer. K-State had been chosen to lead a five-year global animal health effort by opening a new center. And at the helm, he already has some ambitious goals. In a decade from now, I hope that this center will, you know, anywhere across the world, anybody needs anything done related to economics for animal health, animal burdens, animal welfare, they immediately turn to K-State. Called the Collaborating Center for the Economics of Animal Health Americas region, Pendle and team are just starting on the building blocks, ones that will develop decision-making tools and improve communication on the economic impacts of animal diseases. When we think about this center, it's, it's veterinary data, it's the disease data, disease prevalence, disease incidence, in addition to economic data like prices and quantities and whatnot. But it takes a whole team of people and including data from a whole bunch of different sources and different disciplines to come together to study this, these animal health economic issues. 
K-State was chosen by the World Organization for Animal Health, which represents countries within North and South America. There are 33 countries in the America regions that are members of the World Organization for Animal Health. So you've got, you know, Canada, Mexico, United States, you've got all Central America, all South America, and the Caribbean islands. Pendle says here at home, livestock producers across the country are on high alert about the potential threat of many animal diseases. Some of the current diseases that are here, like we've got high path that just was you know, introduced again not too recently. Uh, ASF, you know, it's knocking at the door. That's another one that's important. Diseases, endemic diseases like uh, bovine respiratory disease, et cetera, with folks over in the College of Vet Med. So there's going to be not one disease per se. It's going to be probably more of a portfolio approach. But he points out every country is different. So the focus for the U.S. is not always the same as concerns for a country like Brazil. Spent some time in Brazil last month where they're talking about TB, they're talking about brucellosis, uh, issues that are a little different than maybe here in the United States, such as high path AI, uh, we got African swine fever knocking at the door. And so there'd be a lot of different issues, a lot of different diseases that we will focus on. Right now, the team is carving out the answers to what the priority diseases are for each country. Then the team will uncover the potential impact of the animal diseases that pose the biggest threat. Right now, we're, we're trying to visit with the various governments, the animal health officials in these countries to figure out what are the issues that, that, need, that are most relevant, timely for them. Eventually, as we get up and running, it's going to be anywhere from the producer to the consumer and everybody in between, including the governments. But just down the road from Pendle is the new National Bioagro-Defense Facility, a joint effort between the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Department of Homeland Security. The facility is designed to protect agriculture against possible foreign animal diseases. And while the research is not new, the location here in Manhattan, Kansas, is. InBath is needed to replace Plum Island because Plum Island is more than 65 years old and doesn't have the capability to meet growing research and diagnostic needs when it comes to emerging diseases, which are those that are new or not well known, and zoonotic diseases, which are those that transfer between animals and humans. So InBath will be able to continue as well as expand upon Plum Island's mission to protect U.S. agriculture and our food supply against terrorist attacks, major disasters, and other emergencies. Pendle says having InBath down the road from where he is at K-State was another selling point to why having the new center here made sense. The biggest opportunity, you know, being here in Manhattan, Kansas at Kansas State University, I think uh, animal health industry is only going to grow because of InBath, as I mentioned. And I think there's going to be so many opportunities in this space to add an economic component to the research that's going on in this animal health space. Pendle knows it's a big undertaking, but it's one that could change the game for livestock producers, not just in Kansas, but around the globe. We have a lot more to cover for our college road show here at Kansas State, including with our discussion with K-State economists. That conversation picks back up next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Okay, we talked quite a bit about, about Brazil. We talked some about domestic production, but Glenn, I want to start with you because as we look at this impressive price run that we've seen with cattle, do you think we continue to shrink this cattle herd into 2024? And how long do you think these higher cattle prices will last? So the first question, yes, we likely will shrink it further because that will happen when we pull the trigger on herd expansion. We will take heifers out of the system to keep them back on the ranch to rebuild the breeding herd. And a lot of folks think that process will start in 2024 and maybe be going stronger into 2025. Uh, that's the supply answer. 
this is an important segue to remind the students that are with us, thanks for coming out, is supply and demand both matter on the cattle prices we see. So if beef demand holds up and we have the supply situation play out, we'll sustain higher cattle prices. Beef demand itself is really important. We've talked about export, you know, the international market. That's just one of three channels, domestic retail, domestic food service being the other two. Uh, beef demand needs to sustain strength across those three, along with that supply story to sustain these elevated cattle prices. I think there's a decent chance that will occur. Maybe the macroeconomic situation will improve over the next 18, 24 months. But it's really important to monitor beef demand, not just the number of hooves that are in the cattle industry. Well, real quick, you talked about demand and supply. So supply side in pork, how much contraction do we need to see in order to finally get these profit margins back in the green? Yeah, and that's not a fun thing to talk about. It's important to remember the cost of production have elevated notably more in the hog production system than what we've seen an increase in market hog prices. So that's a simple profit squeeze that's occurred. A lot of estimates suggest maybe 10% of the sales need to exit our industry to sort of right size with current economics. Now, exactly how fast it'll happen and if we'll have exactly 10% or not, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Uh, but the U.S. hog industry is in the process of shrinking. So we talked about some of the headwinds for pork here in the U.S., but when you look for Brazil and you look at, at, at crop farmers right now, what are some headwinds that Brazil's facing? We've heard about drought, but what are some of the main headwinds that you think they're facing there? So definitely, uh, so one big issue, it's the price of fertilizer. They depend on imported fertilizer that comes from Russia and Belarus. That, so we have all that conflict in the region of the world. Prices have gone up dramatically and that's squeezing the profits. And the major uh, drawback of Brazilian agriculture really are transportation costs. The transportation costs are huge. It's a large country. It's not easy to, to come from where you produce the soybeans, the corn, etc., to the ports that are in, on the coast. So, uh, and then you have the similar macroeconomic problems that we see here, high interest rates, trying to tame inflation, and high levels of debt at the farm level. So there are, those are the issues that they are dealing with at this point. Dustin, you know, when you look at, at China, one of the headwinds that they've really dealt with, and we've, we've heard it come back and then kind of tamed down again, but ASF in, in, in China, how much devastation did that cause? And if ASF were to enter the U.S., what would that mean for U.S. producers? If ASF was to enter into the United States, which it is knocking on our back door down in the, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, if it was to enter into the United States, you know, Iowa State did a study a couple of years ago that said if we got it, you know, what would happen? Well, we're probably going to lose export markets uh, immediately. Well, how are we going to get rid of that excess surplus of pork? Prices they found U.S. live uh, hog prices are going to probably need to fall by 40 to 50 percent. So Glenn's already talked about the margins a minute ago. And so when you're talking prices are going to fall by 40 to 50 percent uh, of, of live hog prices just to get rid of that excess. And it's not just hogs. It's, it's going to spill over into your other proteins, beef, chicken. Uh, those producers are going to be impacted. There's going to be less of a demand for grain price or for grain feed stuff. So grain prices will also have an impact as well. So it, it would be devastating. Which is why the industry is working so hard to, to, to keep it out. Glenn, let's end on a positive note. Some economists are dubbing 2024 the year of protein. They think that protein demand is just going to be phenomenal from around the globe. Do you agree with that? It certainly can be. It's important to note that there is strong evidence of meat protein demand. There's a lot of interest both domestically and abroad, but there's been macroeconomic challenges. So here at home, cost of living has exceeded you know, earnings for some time. That's put downward pressure on buying power. 
I think there's reasons to be cautiously optimistic by the end of 2024. The macroeconomic situation is better, and that would facilitate that interest in buying more meat. Uh, so I tend to agree 24 will be better than 23, but it hinges on the macroeconomic improvement to occur. Nelson, Glenn, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Yeah! Well, cattle prices have reached record highs this year, and as you heard from Glenn Tonzer earlier, the impressive price run may not be over yet. The one big question, what happens with meat demand? And it's a topic that economists here at Kansas State University are watching closely. It's a story that's been brewing all year. The U.S. cattle herd dropped to the lowest level in more than 50 years, driving cattle prices to new highs. Any good economist will tell you we have to understand both supply and demand to understand the price and quantities that are going on in your market. And I hope things like the MDM help us understand the demand part of that equation more. Glenn Tonzer authors the monthly meat demand monitor, a deep dive into all things domestic meat demand. Started in February 2020, Tonzer says the survey is beef and pork checkoff funded, surveying more than 2,000 consumers from across the country each month. We know a lot less about food service away from home than we do at home, and we're trying to you know, improve that knowledge gap. The survey taps into a wide variety of household incomes, helping K-State economists understand what's at play when they make their purchasing decisions. And today, Tonzer says it's clear that tighter budgets are starting to weigh on consumers. The importance of price in what drives what protein you buy has only been higher once since February of 20. Uh, so consumers are worried about their finances is the punchline. Each month, the meat demand monitor tracks 12 things, including safety, taste, freshness, and price. Only 17% of U.S. households in our survey for September of 23 said their finances at home are better than last year. So the remainder say the same or worse, and it's a little over a third that say it's actually worse. Tonzer says that's forcing some shoppers to change to cheaper cuts of meat or even buy smaller packaging. It's not running people away from meat because they still want to have meat. Right? There's still strong demand, but the net affordability is a concern. And as budgets become more strained, Tonzer says more shoppers are shying away from pricier items. That includes plant-based meat or even some of the environmental claims. Under half of U.S. residents put a high priority on animal welfare, origin, environmental impact, and those kind of things. Taste, freshness, price, safety, those are important to almost all U.S. You know, consumers when they make decisions. But things like animal welfare claims, origin claims, environmental impact, of foot, you know, carbon footprint and so forth, there's a place for those, but only with a minority of U.S. consumers. From what shoppers are willing to pay to whether they're eating out or cooking more at home, it's providing a taste of current consumer trends. Well, we've talked about results of the meat demand monitor quite a bit on this show, so it was nice to get a peek behind the scenes of how it all comes together. Well, as more states legalize cannabis, is that turning into more demand for farmers who grow it? It's a question John tries to tackle in customer support this weekend. That's next. How will cannabis reshape American agriculture? As more states legalize cannabis, is cannabis the new cash crop for farmers? Here's John Phipps. From Linda Livingston in Albuquerque, New Mexico, how will the increase in cannabis legalization affect the United States agriculture business? We recently legalized cannabis in New Mexico. Our state is already facing drought conditions and possible electric brownouts this summer. 
cannabis cultivation uses large amounts of water and electricity. There has been discussion about uh, paying some of the farmers to leave their lands fallow. How can we make sure our farmers and farms are protected? Well, Linda, I'm, I'm so old that I remember when cannabis was called marijuana. We also called it weed for good reason. Midwestern farmers mowed it in their roadsides and dreamed of getting rich from this pest plant. Two things changed my mind. First, a great book by Michael Pollan, The Botany of Desire, which detailed how humans have shaped four species, cannabis, apples, potatoes, and tulips, into plants that are barely recognizable from their original forms. For example, we turned a scruffy grass called teosinte into 300 bushel corn. The section on cannabis dispelled my pipe dream so to speak, of lucrative commercial production. After decades of painstaking plant breeding, modern cannabis is cultivated uh, largely under intense lights in greenhouses or in high sunlight locations. It does require enormous amounts of energy and roughly twice the water, six gallons per day per plant, during the growing season as corn or soybeans. This amounts to two acre feet per year. In comparison, alfalfa and high value tree nuts like pistachios need about three times as much water. These numbers don't mean much though because we don't need millions of acres of cannabis. California has the best data on cannabis production, go figure, and out of 27 million acres there some 2,000 are in cannabis production, and much of that is marginally forested land as well. There will be more stories of buy and dry agreements with farmers for water rights, but cannabis production is not a large factor in water use. Population growth is the main driver. The second reason I gave up the dream of cannabis windfall was the enormous profit potential. That type of wealth won't be captured by row crop farmers like me, but by deep pocket investors. 80 acre greenhouses demonstrate this business axiom. Thanks, John. Well, it's not every day that you see a purple combine, but here at K-State, a purple combine is a staple on game day. We'll show you the work of art next. Have you ever seen a purple combine? It's not something that you see every day, but here at Kansas State, a purple combine is on display every game day. Decked out in purple from snout to back, this combine crawls across university farm fields each game day, all to claim its spot just across the football stadium for tailgating. What you can't see right now is what the night setup looks like. Um, so at night, we'll have that augers out. Uh, we have lights that we dangle down from the auger. We'll have our headlights on and all that. It's And we can, they're LEDs, so we can make them all purple or whatever color we want. With two grills secured on the front and flags waving with purple pride on the back, the tailgating hotspot has captured quite the attention online. But these three college farmhouse fraternity brothers and friends say they bought it on a whim when they were freshmen. One of our other friends was kind of scrolling on Facebook Marketplace and happened to see it. And then we just thought it was pretty cool and um, 
figured out a way to buy it. So they did. And while several went in together, these three have the biggest financial stake, also pouring in the most sweat equity into the tailgating beast. We had to do a little bit of work, electrical work, uh, replace batteries, fluids, uh, a lot of little stuff like that. Once that was done, that's where the fun came in, installing a basketball goal and building an entire deck on top. I built most of that back at home where I'm from, and about each part on the railing took about 20 to 30 hours of welding, grinding, and painting. And it's a masterpiece that took Haas nearly two summers to finish. The installation process of it probably took oh, a couple 40-hour work weeks to get it all welded together and assembled. Yeah, and it was one of the hard parts was uh, like making all the measurements here and then taking it back home and building it all there and then making it fit here. So it wasn't easy. And now it's an endeavor that these three say has been well worth it. Why not? <laughs> it feels kind of like a legacy that we get to leave here for others. Mm -hmm. I bet that's fun on Saturdays. Well, we're taking a break from College Roadshow next week, but in two weeks, we're on the road again, heading to the University of Minnesota. Yep, heading to the Gopher Nation for the first time. But that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thanks for watching, and be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.